Luke 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Suddenly, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Keep that passage open before you there, and let's, let's pray. We have all sorts of ideas about um, what might happen in that year and what we might need to get through that year or to thrive in that year. Lord, what we need most of all is to know your presence with us and to hear your word to us, to hear what you have to say. So we pray you'd come today. We've heard your word. Help us now as we reflect on it for a few moments to, to see what it is that you're saying to us. Here and now. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little before Christmas, uh, Claire and I took the family to go and see The Last Jedi. So for those of you who haven't been watching this latest incarnation of the, the Star Wars universe, um, you may not know about the, the combative relationship between Kylo Ren and Rey, two of the characters. So there's a scene in the movie where Kylo Ren is confronting Rey and he tells her that her parents uh, were, were junkies who, who sold her off for drug money and he says this to her. You are nothing. You have no place in this story. This morning, we're coming back to Luke's Gospel and we're preparing ourselves for 2018 by hearing the Word of God. And we're going to see a couple of wonderful things. We're going to see that we do have a place in this story. And we're going to see that our place in this story is much, much greater than we have ever yet realized. These closing verses of Luke chapter 18, Jesus is approaching Jericho. That, that means he's on the, the home straight. 
He's on the, the final uh, stretch heading towards Jerusalem. If you remember, the whole of that middle section of Luke's Gospel was Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Well, now he's nearly there. It's only about 25 kilometers uh, as the crow flies from Jericho to Jerusalem. So, I don't know, a few days travel on foot. It's not going to take an awfully long time for him to make his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's nearly there. So we pick up the story in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting at the roadside. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Blind man at the roadside, he hears the crowd and can't see what's going on, so he has to ask somebody what's going on, and they tell him, all very normal in the culture of the day. In the Middle East, there's this thing that people do where if uh, celebrities come into town, they go out to meet them. Um, and, and you can sort of tell how, how big a deal a celebrity is by how far they will go out to meet him. Uh, the Bible scholar uh, Kenneth Bailey talks about this. He lived in Egypt in the 1960s, and he remembers a time when the, the then president of Egypt, President Nasser, came to the town in which he was living. His entourage approached the city Thousands of people walked more than 10 miles out of the city to go and greet him. He describes the scene. It sounds amazing. He says that they were so excited to see the president that when they met the entourage, they told the drivers of the cavalcade to turn off their engines. They pulled out the ropes they had with them, tied them around the bumpers of the car, and pulled the president the last 10 miles into the town. Like I'm thinking, how long did that take? Three hours? What must it be like to be the president? You could be feeling the love all right, wouldn't you? Big crowd, thousands of people pulling you into the city. It's a great moment. It's a bit like, I don't know, the victorious Olympian returning to the airport with his gold medal. The crowd was there to greet him. So the crowd's there welcoming Jesus uh, and, and the blind man, he gets a bit of a sense of this. Uh, and whenever he asks what's going on, he's told, oh, it's Jesus, uh, the, the teacher healer guy from Nazareth. He's, he's coming into town today. Uh, and quick as a flash, before anybody gets a chance to stop him, the blind man is up and at it. And he shouts over, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls him a son of David. It only happens twice in all of the synoptic gospels. It sort of shows that somehow this blind guy is connecting Jesus with Israel's greatest king, their, their royal family. He sees something. He might be blind, but, but maybe he sees something that day that that few other people in the crowd can see. By the way, Luke doesn't tell us what this blind guy's called. It's probably simply out of a sense of decency. 
Because when the gospel writer Mark tells us this same story, he tells us that this blind guy is called Bartimaeus. It means son of filth. Can you imagine what they might call him a bit further down the Newtonards Road? Son of filth. He's a wee... So this blind man, this son of filth, as the people of Jericho call him, is calling out to Jesus, this celebrity guest, and the crowd aren't having it. They, they don't want Bartimaeus getting the attention of Jesus, their guest. Luke tells us, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. They, they told him to shut up, literally. That's what it says in the text. Shut up. You see, they had some sort of an idea of what was going on that day when Jesus Christ, the preacher, healer, spiritual leader, whenever he comes to town, we want to be seen in our best light. And we don't want guys like you spoiling the occasion. So they told this son of filth, shut up. You're nothing. You have no place in this story. There are a lot of people at any time in a gathering as, as big as this who believe that they have no place or no real place in the story of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you feel like a, a son of filth or a daughter of filth this morning. Feel as low as you've ever felt. You feel like you're good for nothing and good to no one. And certainly not good enough for God. And maybe... People around you have even told you as much. People don't tend to do that directly, not unless they're extraordinarily cruel. But sometimes they let you know it or, or imply it. You have no place in this story. Maybe you didn't grow up in a church or in a family that has faith. You like being around places like this, gatherings like this, but, but you're still not sure that you're welcome in the way that everybody else seems to be. Maybe you did grow up in the church, but actually um, when you look back in your life, you realize or you remember the time when you turned your back on it all. That period of time, those years or those decades when you had nothing much to do with it. Actually, when you lived a life quite contrary to the life God made you for. And although you're back, although you're here, you wonder if it doesn't all somehow disqualify you. Maybe you've been here all along. You've been in the gatherings, you've been part of the church community. But you don't feel welcome. Not the way some other people seem to. It seems to be for people better than you. More, more respectable than you. More spiritual than you. 
You know the story inside out, but you don't know if you have a place in it. It, it turns out with Jesus Christ that everyone has a place in his story. The son of filth, what does Jesus do to him? Have a look. The crowd tries to shut him up. He shouts out more and more to get Jesus' attention. What does Jesus do? Verse 40, Jesus stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. This is beautiful. I love what he does here because he turns to the people who are trying to push the blind guy out of the road and he makes them bring him. It's as though he's the king. He makes the crowd his servants and he says, see that, that blind guy over there? See, see son of filth over there? Bring him to me. Today he's my special guest. Isn't it brilliant that Jesus Christ, God among us, chooses to notice and to dignify and to love the people that everyone else is telling to shut up and pushing out of the road. Great people don't mix with winos and the homeless because they imagine that it diminishes their greatness. Jesus Christ is the opposite. Therein lies his greatness. Isn't our God just amazing? A few weeks ago, earlier in December, Claire and I went to hear one of my heroes, Ricky Ross. Uh, some of you might remember him as the lead singer of Deacon Blue uh, hundreds of years ago. He was playing in a very small venue, the Empire Music Hall. Only about 150 people there, much smaller gathering actually than this. And he played a song uh, that evening, part of that very intimate set, a song called Only God and Dogs. Uh, and he was talking a lot about the, the songs and the meanings that night. So he told us uh, about the inspiration for this song. He was in, in Glasgow where he lives, waiting at a traffic lights uh, at Byers Road, which apparently is a, a posh part of Glasgow. And he noticed a dog bounding, bounding happily, wagging its tail, crossing the road in front of him. And he couldn't help but wonder, you know, why is that dog so happy? Uh, wh where's it off to? So for a moment, he, he let his glance follow the, the dog, his, his gaze follow the dog. And he saw it bounding with joy back to its owners. Couple of tramps, a couple of homeless men sitting there in the street. Sons of filth, we might call them. And the song tells the story actually through the eyes of, of the dog. I saw you wandering, I saw you raking through the bins, I saw your clothes, I smelt your shoes your empty boxes and your tins. But I'd know you anywhere if I saw you morning, noon or night. That's why I'd lift myself up just enough just to run after you. 
I'd give you everything of me, knowing that you can't return it back in full. That's why I love you, the way only God and dogs can do. That's why I love you, the way only God and dogs can do. Nobody loves these two men. They're unlovable. Sons of filth. You see, most people discriminate with their love and their affection. Nobody would stoop so low. Nobody could. Except for a dog. And our God. Revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Bartimaeus, son of filth, come on over here. Come and be with me. That's who our God is. But there's more. He not only says everyone has a place in this story. Our place in this story is far greater than we have ever yet realized. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? At first, it seems like an unnecessary question. I mean, think about it for a second. You're, you're in the center of Belfast, and you notice 20 yards ahead, it's the big issue seller. You don't need to ask yourself what's going on there. You don't need to ask yourself what a beggar is looking for. They need a pound or a fiver or whatever it is you can manage to scrape together. Something to help them get through the day. So what's Jesus up to with this question? What do you want me to do for you? He wants to test the, the level of this guy's appetite, the level of this guy's faith in Jesus. It's not the only time he's used that kind of a question. Um, one time on a previous visit to Jerusalem, you might know the story, there's a guy lying beside a pool where people expect to get healed, and Jesus happens to be passing by, and Jesus asks this guy, do you want to get well? You see, Jesus doesn't ever force himself on us. He doesn't assume that we want to get healthy or heal us without our permission or our asking. Think about it for a second. If Jesus heals Bartimaeus, things change for him. There are losses as well as gains. Bartimaeus is going to lose his income. Right? If you're a blind beggar and suddenly you can see, like you've got to get a job. That's, that's the income stream gone. The benefits are gone. He's going to lose an element of his identity, isn't he? He moves from being blind Bartimaeus, a bit of a guy around Jericho, to just being Bartimaeus. You know, just anybody. 
sometimes even our sicknesses, the ways in which we're unhealthy, have become part of our identity. And they're hard to let go. Bartimaeus, he, he might be physically blind, but he's spiritually seeing a whole lot that day. He sees Jesus for who he is. He sees Jesus as the only person who can help him. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And he doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for help in general. He asks to be healed, to be made whole. He says, Lord, I want to see. Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And Luke goes on to tell us the outcome. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. What do you want me to do for you? It's just brilliant. Jesus comes to town and Bartimaeus, his life's changed forever. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus doesn't ask for a few quid. He doesn't ask for a newer, higher-tech white stick. He doesn't ask for better disabled access to Jericho for people who are visually impaired. He asks to see. Lord, the thing that's wrong with me, make it right. The thing that's broken in me, fix it. The part of me that's missing, make me whole. Make me what I'm supposed to be. Folks, our place in this story is greater than we have ever yet understood. Like Bartimaeus, we need a bigger vision for what Jesus Christ can and wants to do in us. Whenever he asks me, what do you want me to do for you? I've got to start saying better things than help me find a parking space. Cure me from my cold. Keep my family healthy. Don't let bad things happen to us. Let my kids do well at school so that they can get to the right school, so that they can get to the right university, so that they can end up doing the right kind of job, mixing with the right kind of people. In short, give me a nice, comfortable life. I've got to start asking for a little bit more than that of Jesus Christ whenever he asks me, what do you want me to do for you? We need a bigger vision as we head into 2018 for our own lives. Just before Christmas, I got to read um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I thought I'd read it before, but I'm not actually sure that I did. I think I tried starting it before and I gave up. I, I realized immediately why. The first part of it's the hardest part. If you've ever tried reading, ignore the first quarter of the book and read the rest. It's, it's better. The last few chapters were very fresh to me as I read them. 
and quite frankly, they blew me away because they helped me with what I'm talking about here, having a, a bigger vision for the life that God's made me for. Here's the kind of thing Lewis says there. He says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. In, in a chapter where he's exploring a, a question whether Christianity is easy or hard, he says this, the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and your money and so much of your work. I want you. I haven't come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones which you think wicked, the whole outfit, I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That day in Jericho, Bartimaeus met with Jesus Christ, and, and he didn't settle for a few quid. He, he allowed Jesus to change his life, to, to make him a disciple. He started to follow Jesus. In a chapter where Lewis is talking about the, the counting the cost of following Jesus, about the kind of place that Jesus wants to give us in his story, Lewis says this, Of course, we never wanted and never asked to be made into the sort of creatures he wants to make us. But the question isn't what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. He's the inventor, we're only the machine. He's the painter, we're only the painting. How should we know what he means for us to be like? We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but he's determined to carry out a quite different plan. Now listen to this. Lewis says, to shrink back from this plan is not humility. Okay? To hold back from the great things that God is wanting to do in us isn't humility. It's laziness and cowardice. To submit is not conceit or megalomania. It's obedience. Isn't this amazing? We're thinking about how our place in the story is greater than we have maybe yet understood. One last short passage. Lewis borrows a parable from the writer George MacDonald. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing and, and so you're not surprised. 
But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up a new extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into quite a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself, you see. Wow. I do have a place in this story. But it might be a bigger place than I'd reckoned for so far. I may be a son of filth. But he's loving me and changing me and making me a palace for his glory where he can live. Isn't this staggering? Too good to be true. How is it possible? Like, how, how does it work? How does a perfect, pure, holy God take sons and daughters of filth like you and like me? Well, not without going to great lengths and paying a great cost. Today we've spent a few moments, just a few moments in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's not, not the end of the journey. Jesus is only passing through. He's going to, Jer or, sorry, Jericho. Jericho's not the end of the journey. He's, he's going to Jerusalem. And you know what, what's going to happen to him there. He's going to be treated as a common criminal. He's going to be crucified at a crossroads outside of the city with all the other scum of the earth. And he says he does that for us taking our place, the, the penalty that our lives and our sin deserves. So, so what he's going to do is he's going to become the son of filth so that I can become and you can become sons and daughters of God. You know why we love him? Let's do the thing that he told us to do. He told us to, to remember him and to, to remember what he'd done for us by sharing a meal together, by taking bread and taking wine. Uh, we're going to take some time in our service now to, to do just that.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the table of the Lord. He invites all who love him. Today we say, including any sons and daughters of filth, anyone, to come and sit with him and to share at his joyful feast. All who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, from whatever branch of the church you come, you're welcome in his house and at his table. Just before we do that, and at the start of a new year, uh, let, let's take a moment to do the thing we sometimes do, and that is to declare our belief in him. Let's say together the words of the Apostles' Creed. The, the slides are on the screen here for us. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. On the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant sealed by my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in memory of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, it's been just lovely to spend a few moments today thinking about who you are.